All right, well, good morning, everybody. Thank you guys um, for being here this morning. Looks like um, it's a rainy day, and I think some folks decided to stay home, but I'm glad that you guys are here with us this morning. Let me start by saying yesterday we had a uh, work day here at Redemption that was organized by the deacons, Um, and so special thank you to uh, the folks who organized that and everybody who showed up yesterday. Um, A lot of stuff happened yesterday. Um, so thank you guys for that. Um, my name is Reggie, and I'm one of the elders, one of the pastors here at Redemption, if, if I don't know you. And um, this morning, we're going to be looking together at God's Word from Matthew chapter 22. Uh, but we're in this season of church life that we call uh, Lent. It's the time where we're leading up to Easter and sort of as we move towards Easter, taking some time to intentionally orient ourselves towards Jesus, around Jesus, focusing uh, on what Christ has done for us as we move towards Easter and as, as we move towards celebrating the resurrection of Christ. Um, and so a couple of weeks ago on our website, on our, on our blog, uh, Ben posted uh, a couple of challenges to us as a church, and I just want to highlight those. Maybe you haven't seen that blog post, go check it out on the Redemption website. But specifically, Ben laid out three challenges to us. That during Lent, we would be a church that prays, uh, intentionally setting aside time to pray for uh, God's work, for God to be at work, for one another, um, things like that. Uh, And Ben also challenged us to be radically committed to increasingly submitting all of life to the empowering presence and lordship of Jesus Christ. And we'll be talking about that in a greater extent this morning in Matthew chapter 22. Ben also invited us to be radically committed to identifying and reaching outsiders with the good news of Jesus Christ and to intentionally be involved in other people's lives and to invite people to be a part of Redemption Church and the things that are going on to Redemption. Um, There are some cards in the back on the back tables uh, and out in the lobby where you can um, hand these out. They have service times, website information, um, different things like that. So feel free to grab one. And uh, just an easy little way to let people know about what's going on at Redemption Church. Um, But as we get started this morning and before we dive into God's Word, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been in a situation where you got trapped by your own words? Have you ever been in a situation where you put your foot in your mouth, where your words actually entangled you in such a way that it led you to get in some sort of trouble? Um, This is going to surprise you guys, but when I was young... Uh, fifth, sixth, seventh grade, middle school, things like that, um, I was the worst kid possible. Um, That's young, but at the same time, I was very rebellious, just very, I don't care what you tell me, I'm not going to do it. It doesn't matter, very blatant about it. And so um, when I was in, I I don't remember if it was fifth or sixth grade in school, we had these things called self-discipline cards, which is kind of weird. But the teacher, whenever you would get in trouble, the teacher would write down on the card what you did wrong, and then you had to sign it. And then if you had enough signatures on your card, they would actually send a copy home to your parents so that your parents could see all the things that you got in trouble for. And so I remember one day after school, my dad picked me up, and I got in the car, and um, we're just sort of driving, and he's being very casual. I'm in the back seat. He's in the front seat. And uh, he goes, hey, um, I did, have you had to sign your self-discipline card at all here lately? And I was like, no, of course not. He was like, are you sure you haven't done anything wrong? You haven't done this or you haven't done that? I'm like, no, I would never do that. And he just like takes the paper and holds it up 
that it got sent home, so I'm looking at it. I just remember going, oh, no. And he goes, oh, no, it's right. And um, <laughs> then I got yelled at for a little while on the ride home. But I entangled myself by my own words and by my own actions. Um, we're going to see that show up in just a second as we move through this passage. But let's, uh, let's pray together as we get started. God, thank you for giving us the opportunity to be present this morning. Thank you for the season of Lent where we can intentionally focus on you and reorient our lives and hearts around you and increasingly move towards submitting all of our life to you. Um, God, thank you for Jesus around whose name we can gather during this time. God, I pray over the next few minutes as we look at your word that you would speak to our hearts and minds. God, I recognize that my words are of little importance, but God, your words are of utmost importance So God, I pray that we would hear from you. I pray that you would use me as an instrument of your grace and mercy, an instrument of love in the gospel, that Jesus would be lifted high and glorified, that we would be drawn to you because of Jesus. God, we ask all this in the name of your son. Amen. Matthew chapter 22, there are three very distinct um, situations that happen. Uh, There are three sort of confrontations that Jesus has. There's actually four in Matthew 22, and Brent's going to deal with one of them next week, the last one. Uh, But there's three very distinct uh, confrontations that we see here between Jesus and some other people. Um, And as these people are coming to Jesus, they are coming to Jesus, in essence, to try and entangle him in his own words, to sort of trip him up and to have him make a mistake uh, in the way that they respond to the questions that, he ha- that they have for him. Matthew chapter 22, uh, we're in the last week of Jesus' life. It's like Monday or Tuesday. We're leading up toward the crucifixion and resurrection, but it's still the beginning of the week. It's early in the week. Jesus has already come to Jerusalem. We've already had the triumphal entry where Jesus has come into Jerusalem. People have laid palm trees, palm branches in front of him. They've worshiped him. And Jesus is going through this week essentially setting things in order. He's orienting the eyes of those around him towards the cross, toward his ultimate sacrifice, toward his ultimate victory on the cross. And so in Matthew chapter 22, we're going to look at these stories um, sort of as we go along. We're going to look at the first one uh, right now. Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 15. Um, And you can just camp out there in Matthew 22 because we're going to come back to it in a little bit. But if you want to go ahead and take your Bibles and turn there, we'll look at the first encounter that happens between Jesus and another group of people. And then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. You do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. They brought him a denarius, and Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Like I said, in this passage, this is the first of very three distinct stories of people confronting Jesus 
in order to entangle him. And that's the key to understanding Jesus' response and the key to understanding what's going on here. Um, They're coming to entangle and trap Jesus, and Jesus takes these opportunities and attempts to, he doesn't attempt, but Jesus takes these opportunities to reorient their eyes toward him and toward the cross and toward um, what God is up to. They don't follow along, but that's what Jesus is doing. And um, these religious leaders, as they're coming to Jesus to ask him these questions, they're not really concerned about his answers. They're sort of using these opportunities for their own benefit, right? We just read that the text says they're trying to entangle him in his own words. They're trying to show that Jesus is with them or maybe that Jesus is against them. They're trying to show that Jesus fits into their mold or maybe that he doesn't. And if he does, maybe they can claim him and get some power from that relationship. And if he doesn't, then they can fight against him and use the power that they have to get him in some sort of trouble. And either way, they have their own agenda, their own little kingdom that they're trying to build. And like I said, instead of playing into this, Jesus takes the opportunity to reorient their lives, their thoughts, whatever they're doing toward God, toward what God is up to, and toward Jesus' coming sacrifice. They don't follow along. They don't get it. That's what Jesus is up to here. And right, that's really what Lent is about, as I mentioned a second ago. And as much as Jesus in this passage is trying to reorient these uh, people who are coming to him to confront him, uh, and as much as Jesus is doing that there, the call for our lives this morning is exactly the same, that we would be reoriented around Christ, around the gospel around the cross as we move towards Lent and we move towards Easter, that we would um, be intentional during this time to take some time to pray, to take some time to increasingly submit more of our life to Christ and to intentionally invest in the lives of others, even to the point of inviting them to church or to missional community or wherever that we would be involved in their lives. And so in verses 15 through 22 that we just looked at, we've got two very distinct groups of people here. We have the Herodians and we have the Pharisees. Um, The Pharisees, if uh, you look throughout the Gospels, you constantly see Jesus having confrontation with the Pharisees. There were three main religious um, groups like the Pharisees that existed during the time of Jesus. One was the Pharisees. One was the Sadducees, which we'll look at in just a second. The other was a group of people called the Essenes who really don't show up a lot in the New Testament scriptures, uh, but they're actually the people who probably took care of the Dead Sea Scrolls, if you know uh, the history of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So there are three main religious groups that show up. The Pharisees are these guys who are very strict, very religious. They're opposed to Rome. They're opposed to paying disciples. What they're interested in is that you obey the Old Testament scriptures, that you are a good disciple of the Old Testament, a good disciple of them, and that you're just being very religious and doing what you should be doing in order to follow Christ. And then on the other side, we have the Herodians, who are these local Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem who had some power because they were supportive of Rome. And they were supportive of Rome inasmuch as Rome benefited them and uh, made society just work better in that context. And so these two people are naturally pitted against one another. The Pharisees hate Rome. The Herodians are supporting Rome. And the Pharisees get their disciples and this other group together and send them to Jesus in order for Jesus to support one or the other and cause some sort of conflict and get tangled up in what he's talking about. Anybody present would have known when they asked Jesus, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Anybody would have known where these two sides fell. They would have known there was 
a conflict of interest and a conflict of beliefs there. And so they think they've come up with this foolproof plan to trick Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Right, Jesus does something that causes them to like be quiet and walk away like, oh my gosh, what were we thinking? Right, That's where Jesus goes. And he does that by reorienting them toward a greater kind of kingdom, toward the kingdom of God, a kingdom that is decidedly different than both civil governments and the power of the Pharisees. Right, The Herodians supported Rome. The Pharisees wanted their own government in Israel. They hated Rome. And they come to Jesus saying, support one of these governments, support one of these systems. And Jesus essentially says, guys, you missed the point. I'm about an entirely different kind of kingdom. Jesus points them away from earthly civil kingdoms and reminds them that God's kingdom is very different. That God's kingdom exists and that there's a way to honor God in the midst of that kingdom and to render to God what is God's. But God's kingdom is not the same as any earthly kingdom. Lots of people have used this this set of verses to sort of create a theology and understanding of the way that Christians should interact with government. But I think what Jesus is really doing here is saying civil government is not the same as my kingdom. It's entirely different. We understand the concept of kingdoms even if we don't realize it. For whatever reason, American society, I think, is somewhat obsessed with like um, Princess Diana and the Queen of England and Prince Harry and Prince William, right? They're always, you always see things about them in our news, which is weird. Uh, because this is America, but whatever. We understand kingdoms, and we're really interested in kings and princes and Princess Diana and Princess Kate and all these other things. And on an entertainment level and a literary level, we've got the Game of Thrones, and we've got the Lord of the Rings. And so we sort of understand this concept of kingdoms and power, and they make sense to us on some level. But Jesus, in the book of Matthew... The book of Matthew specifically is about presenting Jesus as being a king in the line of David for God's kingdom that will exist forever, not some earthly kingdom that's just for immediate purposes. Jesus is here to establish a kingdom of a radically different kind that will break through into existence through the changed hearts and lives of his followers inasmuch as they increasingly submit all of their lives to Christ. And so Jesus' kingdom is not about just the here and now. Jesus' kingdom is about the reign of Christ breaking through into our lives as we submit to Christ from now until eternity. And one day Jesus will return and set up a new heaven and a new earth and a new kingdom that will last. But the kingdom that Jesus is talking about here isn't just some sort of civil power structure. It's change from the inside out. It's his kingdom breaking through in our hearts as we submit all of our life to Christ. And our lives are changed and the lives of those around us are changed as well. That's the first encounter. The second encounter that we see is with this group of people called the Sadducees. Uh, I'll read it. It's verses 23 through 33. As soon as I find it, there it is. The same day Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they ask him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. 
Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, down to the seventh. And after them all, and after them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. The Sadducees were this incredibly powerful religious and political group based in Jerusalem. That's where they were the most popular. Uh, You sort of see the Pharisees all over Israel during the time of Jesus. The Sadducees were mainly concentrated in Jerusalem, and they were religiously powerful, religiously popular, and had a great deal of influence in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, When I think of them, I like to think of the people of power in the capital in the Hunger Games. That's a really bad comparison, but that's what pops in my head. Um, Anyway, the Sadducees are mainly located in Jerusalem, and they really only held to the first five books of the Old Testament. That's what their beliefs were based on, the the Torah, the first five books. They sort of discounted the rest of the Old Testament and said the first five books of the Old Testament are the only ones that are really important. They didn't believe in the resurrection of dead, which this passage tells us. They also didn't believe in angels, which you'll notice that Jesus says something about angels in his response to them. I think Jesus is just kind of poking a little bit, right, getting them to think and uh, just sort of intentionally poking when Jesus says that. Um, But they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They don't believe in angels. And they come to Jesus and they present this ridiculous scenario about marriage after the end times when God's going to raise his people to live with him for eternity. Have you ever heard a ridiculous story that somebody has concocted in order to cover their tracks or in order to get out of trouble or in order to just sort of misdirect your attention or get you to look somewhere else? Um, my kids, uh, well, at Christmas time, uh, my wife really loves to decorate the Christmas tree. Um, we have so many ornaments. We have more ornaments than can actually go on any Christmas tree, I think. Um, but we've collected these ornaments over the years to where we go on trips, we buy uh, an ornament, and right? And it's sort of a memory of that trip. Or we just have all these ornaments that are reminders of our almost 20 years of marriage and time before that as well. And when my kids were littler, they're 9 and 11 now, I remember we would tell them, like, don't take the ornaments off the Christmas tree, don't touch the ornaments. Uh, because they're special, there's, you know, there's significance there. And I remember being in another room and like hearing an ornament fall on the ground. I don't remember if it broke or not, but I just remember an ornament falling on the ground and running into the room, not running, but going in the room to see what's happening. And, you know, Natalie's standing there just sort of amazed that, you know, I heard it and ran in there so quick. I'm like, Natalie, why don't you tell me what happened? Did you, did you touch the Christmas tree? Did you knock that ornament off? And she was holding a baby doll and she was like, no, I didn't touch the Christmas tree. My baby doll did. Um, right, she's covering her tracks with this made-up story, and this story that the Sadducees bring to Jesus is just that. It's this ridiculous conundrum that doesn't really exist. It's a scenario, um, number one, they don't even believe in the resurrection, so 
It's just a scenario they made up to be utterly ridiculous, to be absurd. Um, And it's based on this Old Testament practice where uh, a surviving brother would... uh, would, would marry his, his brother's wife if, she, if he were to die uh, in order that she would continue to have some legal standing and to be cared for and all these other things. Um, remember that the society was very patriarchal and that's uh, where this comes from and it was probably intended to care for the widow, uh, but, but that's sort of the scenario that they create. It's an absurd conundrum knowing that they don't believe in the resurrection. They're trying to make a point to Jesus that the resurrection doesn't exist, or they're trying to get him to get caught up in the silly argument uh, so that it will in some way benefit them and show how smart they are and whatever. And Jesus doesn't take the bait. Instead, he reorients the hearers to the bigger picture of who God is, to the bigger picture of God's power, to the bigger picture of what God is up to. Jesus reorients them towards the truth of the scriptures and to the power of God. He points them back to God's word and he points them to God's power. Jesus knows that something's about to happen in a few days on Easter, right? Hint, hint. Jesus is about to be raised from the dead. And these people are coming to him with this ridiculous conundrum about something they don't even believe in. And Jesus redirects them toward the power of God, knowing that in just a few days, Jesus is going to be raised from the dead. A few days, the Sadducees are going to be directly confronted with the very thing that they don't believe in. And so Jesus points them back to Scripture points them to God and said, God is bigger than you can even imagine. You're focusing on this ridiculous, silly conundrum, and you don't even see the big picture. And so Jesus points them back to Scripture, points them back to their lack of knowledge about Scripture, points them to the bigger picture of who God is in order to reorient their faith and their eyes back to the power of God. But they don't get it. They don't get it. The third story we see in verses 34 through 40 um, is a direct encounter with the Pharisees. Let's read that, Matthew 22, 34 through 40. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In this passage, we have what is sort of a, uh, we have these Pharisees asking a mega question, uh, a, a big question. We still ask these mega questions in our society as well. It sort of makes sense to us as well, right? We have disagreements about who was the greatest president of all time. Was it George Washington or Abraham Lincoln or Jimmy Carter because he's from Georgia? Um, Who was the greatest basketball player of all time? Was it Michael Jordan um, or was it Reggie Horn? You may not know this, but Wes Childers and I played on a championship basketball team when we were in high school. We actually won the state championship when I was a senior 
And I played in the state championship game for about 30 seconds. So, hey, that's important. Um, my claim to fame in that championship game, though, is that as we were celebrating, right, the, the buzzer sounds were winning. I jump up off the bench to run out onto the floor to celebrate with my teammates. And there was a referee running off the floor, and we just ran like pow right into each other. And my eye instantly was, was like black and swollen shut, and I couldn't see anything. It looked really awesome. But I ran into a referee after I didn't play very much in the championship game. Who was the greatest boxer of all time, Muhammad Ali or Mike Tyson? What's the greatest movie of all time, Tommy Boy or What About Bob with Bill Murray? Who knows? The greatest book of all time, right? We have these conversations. Uh, We understand this mega question. And so they come to Jesus and they ask him, which commandment? is the greatest. What they're really trying to get Jesus to do is to say something that will conflict with their beliefs. It was a common practice of the Pharisees to debate which command from the Old Testament was the most important. And in the rabbinical Pharisaical tradition, they had isolated 613 commands in the Old Testament. 365 were negative, as in don't do something, and 248 were, in positive, were positive, as in do this. They want Jesus to narrow down what he's about to simple acts of obedience based on what he thinks is the greatest rule to follow. And Jesus doesn't really narrow it down. He opens it up. He refers to very specific scriptures when he answers this question. When he says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, he's referring to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5 where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And when Jesus says, Love your neighbor as yourself, he's referring to Leviticus 19.18, where it says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The verses from Deuteronomy chapter, chapter 6 was known as the Shema. It's the passage every a devout Jewish person would repeat twice a day in the morning and evening uh, as a religious practice. And then Jesus throws in Leviticus 19, which was also a very well-known passage about how to love your neighbor. If you want to know how to love your neighbor, read Leviticus 19, right? Sometimes we have this weird conundrum about what does it mean to love our neighbor based on the Good Samaritan parable and all this other stuff. If you want to know, read Leviticus 19, because it's very specific about how you love your neighbor throughout that passage. And so Jesus combines these two commands together. Love God with all that you are. Love your neighbor. And Jesus takes these two passages and combines them together. And in doing that, he's reorienting the Pharisees not towards simple obedience, but towards a change of heart, towards a change from the inside out. He ties love for neighbor to love for God, and he ties love for God to love for neighbor, and he doesn't make it about mere rules to follow. The very fact that he creates this double command necessitates that one's heart attitude be correct in order to even come close to fulfilling it. Jesus doesn't just focus on action. He focuses on the heart and on a heart change. It's not mere obedience. It's a change from the inside out. It's what we call discipleship. It's what we're calling one another to during Lent, to increasingly submit all of life to the empowering presence and lordship of Jesus Christ, to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so when Jesus calls us to love God 
with our heart, soul, and mind. He's calling us to submit everything to him. He's calling us to reorient our lives around him so that we submit all of our life to Jesus. And when he calls us to love our neighbor as ourselves, he's calling us to submit all of our life to Jesus in the way that we interact with those around us. And here's where I want to camp out for a minute. Anything less than reorienting all of our life around Jesus is sin. That's difficult to hear. But anything less than reorienting all our life around the lordship of Jesus is missing the mark of what Jesus is calling us to in this passage. Uh, Tim Keller in The Reason for God says that sin is making something more central to our significance, purpose, and happiness than our relationship with God. Sin is a failure to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and we all fall short of this. And so let's examine this for just a second. If sin is orienting our lives around anything other than Jesus, then our sin is ultimately way more damaging than we even comprehend. If we seek to orient our lives around good things that aren't Jesus, things like freedom and success and parenthood and work and achievement and church leadership or leadership in the private sector or the esteem of others or social action or charity, whatever we seek to make the center of our lives, we're missing the mark. And if our highest goal is centered in the good of our family, and our family alone, we will tend to care less for one another and for other families. And we will not love others as ourselves. If our highest goal is the good of our nation, we will tend to care less for other nations and may defend ours at all costs. And we will not love others as ourself. If our highest goal is our individual happiness, we will put our economic and power interests ahead of others. And we will not love others as ourselves. If our highest goal is our religion, we will despise and demonize those from other religious traditions, and we will not love others as ourselves, and we will not share the gospel with them. If our highest goal is the good of our church, if our identity is centered in our church or denomination or whatever else, we will defend it by denigrating other churches and denominations, and we will not love others as ourself. If our highest goals are centered on our class or race or gender, we will not love others as ourselves. And I can go on and on and on and on and on and on. It's a hard issue that we would increasingly submit all of our life to Christ, all areas of it, and it will be displayed in the way that we interact with others. Jesus is after a heart change, that our heart would be completely oriented on him. And that heart change will be displayed in the way that we worship. In the way that we pursue God's word. In the way that we pursue Christ. In the way that we increasingly want to submit all of our life, our finances, our family life, our jobs, whatever, to Christ. It will be displayed the way that we interact one others. When sin is defined not as the bad things we do, but is this reorientation away from God as the center and Jesus as our Lord, the solution is both really easy and really difficult at the same time. It's easy because it requires only one thing, refocusing all of our life on Christ. It's hard because it requires refocusing all of our life on Christ. But regardless, Jesus is the key 
here. Jesus is not just calling us to pursue obedience. Jesus is calling us to pursue him. Jesus is calling us toward a heart change. Jesus is calling us to submit all of our lives to him. And the way that we do that is not by mere obedience, not by doing things. It's by repenting of what we're centering our life around now and trusting Jesus instead. It's repenting of whatever occupies our heart's focus and attention and turning to Jesus instead, right? That's the Christian life, repentance and faith. Repentance is the negative side, admitting. Faith is the positive side, turning to Jesus. That's the call on your life, repent and turn to Jesus. Not, not, not to go do something, but to repent and turn to Jesus, to submit our life to Christ and so that it shows in the outflow of the way that we interact with others and the way we interact with those around us. What ties these three stories together is this. These groups of people, the Herodians, the Pharisees, and their disciples, the Sadducees, they're all out to challenge Jesus. That's that's why they showed up, to challenge Jesus. But in being challenged, Jesus simply returns the favor and challenges them to reorient their lives around God in a proper way. And so my question for you as we move toward closing is this. Where do you see yourself in the story? Are you the Herodian who maybe values something about society or culture or government above anything else? Are you pursuing your own kingdom of power instead of Jesus? Are, are you the Sadducee who gets so caught up in silly religious debates that you're missing the very person and the very power of God that's right in front of you? Are you so concerned about proving yourself right that you're missing the fact that Jesus is the only one that can make you right? Are you the Pharisee who seeks your own self-righteousness and your own glory? Are you trying to prove yourself right and good rather than relying on the fact that Jesus has already done the work to make you acceptable and good before God? Where do you see yourself in this story? Inasmuch as Jesus is calling us to reorient ourselves toward him, inasmuch as we are calling one another to the same thing during Lent, let me challenge you with the very things that Ben challenged us with on the blog post a few weeks ago. I encourage you to be people of prayer, praying for one another, praying for yourself, praying for this church, praying for this city that we would reorient our lives around Jesus, that we would be intentional in praying for these things. I challenge you to be involved deeply in God's word. Every Sunday in the bulletin, we post some questions. As a follow-up to the sermon, um, the questions this week are really based on that challenge to, to really get in God's word as we submit all of our life to Christ. So grab a bulletin. Read the passage that we read this morning. Answer those questions. Dive in and see how God is calling us to submit our lives to him. Let me challenge you to be in community with one another, to encourage one another to submit all of our lives to Jesus. Let me challenge you to be a part of a missional community, to be part of a DNA group that together you might push one another towards submitting all of life to Christ in a very good and a very godly way. Let me challenge you those with those things. Pray, be involved in the lives of others. Submit 
to Christ in as much as you study his word and are together and encourage one another in the gospel. Let me encourage you to pursue Christ, not to pursue action, to pursue repentance and faith in as much as we turn from whatever our life is oriented around and turn to Jesus instead. Uh, I'm going to enter into a time of response. We do this every Sunday. In just a few minutes, the band will come back up. They will um, continue to lead us in some songs and give us the opportunity to worship through singing together. Um, so if, if, if you want to worship in that way as we close, let me invite you to. During this time as well, you have an opportunity to sit where you are, to reflect upon what we've heard this morning, to reflect upon the challenge to orient our lives around Christ and to be praying together and pursuing God's word together and investing in one another's life in as much as we seek to orient our lives around Christ. Maybe you need to sit where you are and reflect on those things and pray. During this time, you have an opportunity to give as well. There's a giving basket in the back where you can put your tithes and offerings and continue to worship through giving. And during this time as well, every Sunday here at Redemption, we celebrate communion. Um, It's a time to where we come up front, we come down the middle aisle, and we tear off um, the bread and dip it in the wine or juice. And so remember the body of Christ that was broken for us and the blood of Christ that was shed for us. And in remembering together what Christ has done for us, we're proclaiming to one another that we believe it. And so if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, whether you're a member of Redemption Church or not, um, God gives you the freedom to do so, then I would invite you to come and take communion. And so remember what Christ has done and proclaim to one another that we believe it. If that's not something you can remember and proclaim, I would encourage you to stay where you are instead of coming forward. Not that you would be, um, not that you would be, be set apart, uh, but I don't want you to do something that, that you can't, um, can't say that you do. So, but come forward, tear off the bread, dip it in the wine or juice. So remember what Christ has done for us and proclaim that we believe the gospel and we believe the work of what Christ has done. I'm going to pray for us and then we'll move on. God, thank you for the opportunity we've had once again to be together this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge that you've presented before us in Matthew chapter 22 to orient all of our lives around you. God, that you might be the center of all that we are and all that we do. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his death and resurrection on our behalf. Thank you that we can be rightly related to you because of Jesus. God, during this time, I pray that you would call us to yourself. I pray that Jesus would continue to be lifted high, that we would continue to be drawn to you. God, that you would be glorified and that we would find great joy in our relationship with you. And God, we ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.